0: This podcast details true crime cases. It contains adult themes and may include descriptions of violence. It is not intended for children. Listener discretion is advised. Thank you for joining me for today's episode of Once Upon a Crime. We are in the series Lost and Found. This is Chapter 2, Elizabeth Smart. June fifth, two 2002, around 2 a.m., Salt Lake City, Utah. Elizabeth Smart. 14 years old, is sleeping in her room with her little sister, Mary Catherine, by her side. Mary Catherine is nine years old. Elizabeth wakes up to see a man with a beard standing over her. His hand is pressed against her body roughly, and he has a knife at her throat. Don't make a sound, he says. Get out of bed, or I'll kill you and your family. Elizabeth never doubted that he would kill. She wasn't sure if he had already hurt or even killed her other family members. She was also very concerned about her little sister. Would he hurt her? She'd better do what he asks in order to keep her family safe. He then tells her to get her shoes, and he says he's taking her hostage for a ransom. Nine-year-old Mary Catherine, in shock, just saw her sister taken by a strange man with a beard. She heard the words, hostage, kill, and your family. She was too frozen with fear to leave her bed. Finally, hours later, around 4 a.m., she screws up enough courage to run to her parents' room. Elizabeth is gone, she says to her mother, barely above a whisper. You won't find her. A man came and took her. He had a gun. In her terror, Mary Catherine had forgotten that it was a knife she saw, not a gun. Her parents ran frantically through the house looking for Elizabeth. When they reached the kitchen, Elizabeth's mother, Lois, noticed a breeze blowing the kitchen window curtains. Then she saw something that made her blood run cold. The screen to the kitchen window had been sliced open. Call 911, she screamed. The road behind Elizabeth's house backed into the hillside, which continued up a mountainside. Rocks, trees, and heavy brush dotted the landscape. It was here that the man forced Elizabeth to hike up with him a knife to her back the entire time. Periodically, they would stop so he could take a drink of water or urinate. Elizabeth continued to plead with him to let her go, to ask why he was taking her, to offer him her silence or the ransom he had mentioned earlier. He was not swayed, only saying that he would explain everything when they arrived at their final destination. He didn't seem crazy, Elizabeth thought, although his long, dirty beard and his disheveled appearance might make him seem so. He did, however, seem mean and dangerous. Elizabeth kept climbing. At daybreak, they reached the highest ridge and continued down the other side. About a third of the way down, within a grove of oak trees, they reached a camp. They had been walking for close to seven hours. A woman emerged plain-looking, with wild hair and brooding eyes. She was wearing a rough robe. Elizabeth thought this was an odd garment for the setting in the woods. The camp was primitive, but obviously planned and well-stocked. She saw tents and tarps and other equipment that seemed to indicate they had been here for some time. The woman called him Emmanuel. Brian David Mitchell was 49 years old at the time of Elizabeth's kidnapping. He was also one of six children in a strict Mormon household. He was arrested at age 16 for allegedly exposing himself to a child. He had been married three times. In 1985, his second wife filed a police report alleging he had molested two of their children. He was not charged. Later, a stepdaughter would come forward stating that he had repeatedly molested her as a child. From his three marriages, Mitchell had 13 children and stepchildren. Mitchell had saw Elizabeth in downtown Salt Lake City the previous November, shopping with her mother and little sister, when he was standing on a corner begging for cash or work. Her mother had felt sorry for him, given him a little money, and her husband's cell phone number to contact about odd jobs he might have. Mitchell was hired by Elizabeth's father to do some work at their house. It was then that he began to plan. The woman that Elizabeth saw at the camp was named Wanda Barzi. Barzi and Mitchell were married in 1985, the same day he divorced his second wife. She became his wife as well as his only follower because by this time he had taken to calling himself Emmanuel and identifying himself as a prophet. He said that he'd been handpicked by God to prepare the world for Christ's second coming. He penned a series of writings that revealed these messages titled the book of Emmanuel David Isaiah. Among other things, it included instructions for Mitchell to marry seven more wives. He kept his writing secret from the Mormon church, of which he was still a member, but the local church officials found out about them and excommunicated Mitchell and Barzi in June 2002, right before he kidnapped Elizabeth. <laughs> Soon after they reached the camp, Barzi took Elizabeth into the tent with a bucket of water and forced her to strip off her clothes. At first, Elizabeth refused, but when Barzi threatened to have Emmanuel do it himself, she gave in. Barzi wanted her to wash herself, but she refused that as well, pleading with her and saying she had taken a shower just that previous evening. Then Barzi gave her a rough robe like her own to put on. Mitchell came into the tent, telling her that she was now, quote, sealed to him as his wife, unquote. And hard as she fought and struggled, the 14-year-old girl was no match for Mitchell's strength. He proceeded to rape her. When it was over, Elizabeth was left crying on the floor of the dirty tent. Exhausted and in shock, she finally fell into a fitful sleep. When she awoke, Elizabeth was shackled with a chain by the foot to a cable that was tethered to a post outside. Knowing that she did nothing to deserve being kidnapped, raped, and treated as unhuman, she nonetheless felt completely broken, hopeless, and worthless. Elizabeth would later describe her feeling of utter despair. Imagine you have a beautiful crystal vase. Then imagine that you accidentally knock it off the table, and it shatters into pieces on your floor. We all understand it isn't the vase's fault that it was pushed off the table and shattered. But still, it is broken. It is broken. It is worthless. You don't want it anymore. So you sweep it up and throw away the pieces. That is how I felt. It wasn't my fault, but I was broken. Now no one would want me anymore. From that time forward, Elizabeth was raped almost daily by Mitchell. Day by day, she felt more broken, more hopeless, and would continue to remember her family in order to fight to survive and not give up. Elizabeth, Mitchell, and Barzee would spend two months at the high camp. It was summer, and the days were very hot. Water supplies were limited, so they were not able to wash themselves or have enough to drink. About every week or so, when they started to run out of food, Mitchell would leave Barzee to watch over Elizabeth, who was still chained up, while he made the long trek down the mountain into the town to beg or steal food. He would return sometimes a whole day later, and Elizabeth, half-starved and dehydrated, would actually be happy to see him return. She was afraid he would get caught for stealing or something else and be locked up. She didn't trust Barzi to not run off, leave her shackled where she might starve to death or die from lack of water. While on these runs into town, Mitchell, although still proclaiming himself a prophet of God and subjecting Elizabeth to hours of preaching and praying, would obviously partake of drugs and alcohol. He came back reeking of booze and marijuana. Finally, after about two months at the high camp, Barzi finally had enough. She told Mitchell she would no longer stay on the mountain, starving and waiting for him to return from partying in town. She forced him to take her along, or she threatened to leave and take Elizabeth, or Esther, as she was now being called, with her. He finally agreed. Outfitting both women in long robes and headdresses with attached veils so that only their eyes could be seen, the three hiked down the mountain. Before they left, Mitchell and Varzi threatened Elizabeth, as they had done daily since her capture, that if she tried to escape, they would kill her and also her family. Elizabeth did not doubt that this was true. They came out at the bottom of the hill to the trail that surrounded downtown Salt Lake City and the university campus. It was a busy trail, often filled with joggers, runners, and dog walkers. The first person Elizabeth saw after months in captivity was a jogger who was running straight toward her. Too scared to speak and being closely watched by her captors, she nevertheless tried to gain his attention using only her eyes, pleading with him silently to see her, to recognize her, to get help. Although he passed only a few feet in front of her, he ignored her. When they reached the town, Elizabeth continued to try and find a way to communicate silently with all the people they passed. She soon realized that, dressed as oddly as they were, people would go out of their way to ignore or even avoid the trio. She wanted to scream in frustration. Mitchell, now comfortable that it was safe to parade Elizabeth in the open, soon scored booze and forced her to drink with him. He often used alcohol to make Elizabeth more compliant before raping her. Later on that day, he even took the women with him to a house party near the university. He proceeded to drink and smoke weed with the women trailing beside him, silently through the crowded rooms. Whenever someone would try to talk to Elizabeth, Mitchell would be right there to threaten her and lead her away. Becoming more intoxicated, Mitchell began to preach loudly to the partygoers until, having had enough, some of the guests threw him and his women out of the house. Mitchell had set up another camp previously closer to town, but thought it was too risky to keep Elizabeth there. Now, feeling more confident in his control of her, they moved into the lower campsite. She was no longer shackled to a cable, but the threats and her dependence on her captors for survival had made Elizabeth as much a prisoner as if she was. Soon, Mitchell, Barzey, and Elizabeth started going into town frequently. She still hoped and prayed for someone to see her, to recognize her and save her, but time after time she was disappointed. It was late August when Mitchell realized they would soon need to find a place to go since the cold weather was coming and they would not be able to survive the cold of winter. One day he decided he needed to do some research, get some maps to find out where they should go, California perhaps. The three of them went to the Salt Lake City Public Library. Elizabeth noticed a few library patrons eyeing them. After a few minutes, when they were in the map room, a man approached. He identified himself as a homicide detective. He said he'd had a report that the girl with him might be someone they were looking for. Elizabeth's heart soared. She was finally going to be rescued. She was still too afraid to say anything for fear of the ten months she'd spent with these two monsters. The threats, the violence, and degradation caused her to freeze in fear. But she reasoned he could not blame her— Someone else had reported the sighting. This detective was going to discover her all on his own, and Mitchell couldn't blame her for this discovery. The detective asked her to remove her veil so he could verify that it was not the girl they were looking for. But Mitchell quickly stepped in and said that his religion would not allow this. She was his daughter, and this was how he kept her pure. The detective, not giving up, even asked Mitchell if he would, right now, convert to his religion, would he be allowed to see her? Mitchell, with a ready answer, said this was impossible. Only her family and her husband could ever see her face. After about 15 minutes of questions from the detective, Mitchell boldly asked the detective, anyway, if this was the missing girl, why didn't she say anything or cry out for his help? The detective finally gave in and left. Elizabeth fell into a pit of despair, feeling the lowest she had ever known, even including the day of her kidnapping. Mitchell, for his part, began to brag about how he outsmarted a homicide detective and how this was surely a sign of God's favor. Even so, he now sped up his plans to move to California and would not take Elizabeth into town again before the move. In September, Mitchell had the women pack up whatever was necessary that they could haul, and they began their 800-mile trek to San Diego, California. Wearing the robes and the women covered by veils, then hiked down the mountain for the last time and made their way to the Salt Lake City Greyhound bus station. They rode through the desert and arrived in Alcajon, California the following day. They took a connecting bus to Lakeside, California, located at the base of the Cuyamaca Mountains in San Diego County as soon as they arrived, Mitchell scouted out a new campsite at the edge of town. In a dry and dusty plot not too far behind the local high school, He found a place among some trees and rocks and hidden from the road. There they set up the camp where they would live for the next six months. Back in Salt Lake City, the search for Elizabeth continued. Although Mary Catherine, Elizabeth's young sister, had seen and heard the kidnapper, she was so traumatized that she could not recall much. Experts determined that to push her to try to remember would probably cause her more trauma and be even less helpful. They decided, with agreement from her parents, to just allow her to remember, or not, in her own time. Meanwhile, a massive search had begun as soon as Elizabeth was kidnapped. Up to 2,000 volunteers a day searched in the days after the abduction. Search dogs were used, and helicopters circled the surrounding area. At one point, Elizabeth heard the helicopters and even heard men calling out her name, searching for her on the mountain near their first camp. Mitchell threatened her that if they came near and discovered them, he would kill them all as well as her. Posters with Elizabeth's picture were plastered all over the city. Mitchell even brought back one to show her in Bar Z after one of his trips to town. One suspect that was identified was a man named Richard Ricci. He had also worked at the Smart's home and had been arrested for burglaries in the area. The break-ins were similar in nature to the Smart break-in. He was questioned about the kidnapping and refused to give a confession. A few weeks later, Ritchie died in jail of a brain aneurysm. Still believing him their best suspect, detectives were now convinced that they might never know what happened to Elizabeth. In October, soon after Mitchell arrived in Southern California with Elizabeth, Mary Catherine finally recalled where she had heard Mitchell's voice. She told her parents, I think I know who it is, Emmanuel." She recalled the homeless man that had worked one day at their home raking leaves. The smarts took this information to the police, who were skeptical about the little girl's recall. How could she remember something so long ago and having only seen the man for a few hours even longer ago? The smarts, frustrated by the lack of response from the police, hired a private sketch artist based on Mary Catherine's recalled memory. That sketch, along with the name Emmanuel, was broadcast to the media, including a spot on America's Most Wanted. Mitchell's family, recognizing him from the sketch, called police and provided them with his real name, Brian David Mitchell, along with the recent photo of him. Back in California, Elizabeth continued to suffer ongoing sexual assaults from Mitchell, but now, added to that, she was being starved as well. Mitchell didn't have his connection for food and drugs like he did in Salt Lake City, so he mostly dumpster dived for food. It was never enough, and Elizabeth was always hungry. Some days she got no food and almost no water. Mitchell would still go out panhandling, but being so close to town, he would often spend the money for alcohol and cigarettes, often returning back to camp drunk and without food. The only real meals Elizabeth got that winter were on Thanksgiving and Christmas when Mitchell would take her and Barzi to places that provided free holiday meals for those who were down on their luck. Their camp was determined to be too conspicuous. A couple of people had wandered fairly close and they were almost discovered. So Mitchell decided they needed to move further up the hill away from prying eyes. Once they relocated, Mitchell also decided it was too dangerous for the women to leave the camp from here on out. Barzi balked, but she tended to comply with all of Mitchell's wishes. In February, Mitchell left the camp after a fight with Barzee. In town, he stole a woman's purse from her grocery cart. In it, he found some prescription pills and took them with some beer he had also stolen. He then looked for a place to sleep it off, and coming upon a locked church, he broke a window and entered. He was found by the police and booked into jail. While Mitchell was in jail, Barzee and Elizabeth were left back at the camp with no food or water. They were starving and would have died of thirst if not for the fact that it rained on the fourth day. They collected enough rainwater to drink to stay alive, but without food, they began to feel delirious. Finally, after a week, Mitchell strolled back into the camp, clean, well-fed, and in good spirits. He had brought some leftover food he scrounged from the back of a fast-food restaurant. In this way, Elizabeth survived nearly starving to death. While Mitchell was in jail, he gave his false name. Meanwhile, just mere days later, his picture and the name Emmanuel were broadcast on America's Most Wanted. Soon after that, his real name and photo went out all over the country. Soon after his time in jail, Mitchell decided they needed to move out of California, possibly to the East Coast. Although Elizabeth couldn't figure out how he could ever afford to get them all the way across the country, she was very worried that if he did, She might never be rescued. She prayed and asked God to help her find a way to get Mitchell to move them back to Utah, where she might have a better chance of being found. She turned the tables on him when, for once, she said she had a revelation from God that he needed to find his next bride in Utah. Mitchell still had hopes of securing seven brides, and had always said that they should be good Mormon girls like Elizabeth. By some miracle, he agreed with her and made a plan to go back to Utah. Mitchell decided they would need to hitchhike to get back to Utah. At first, he said she needed to cut her hair and dye it a different color to disguise herself. He didn't think many people would offer them rides while dressed in robes and veils. She refused, and another miracle, Barzi agreed, saying that a woman's hair is her crown, and that it wouldn't be right. Instead, on the way out of town, Mitchell had them stop at a dollar store and bought Elizabeth the only wig he could afford— a gray one that looked very obviously like a disguise. But off they went. They took a route through the desert. Not too wise, since they would be exposed to the heat all day and freezing cold at night as they tried to hitchhike. But Mitchell felt it was too risky to take a more populated route. Elizabeth recounts the kindness of so many people along the way. Those that gave them rides, some that just stopped to give them cold water or drop off some food or money. She knew that they must look very ragged and obviously in need. Still, she was always grateful for every kindness. It only took a few days for the trio to arrive in Sandy, Utah. They arrived March 12, 2003, nine months and a week after Elizabeth had been kidnapped from her bedroom in the middle of the night. It was just a few days before that that America's Most Wanted had aired an update to the Elizabeth Smart Kidnapping episode with Mitchell's name and photo asking viewers to be on the lookout. Mitchell was leading them back to where their first camp was located. Once there, he informed Elizabeth, he would never allow her to leave. There were too many close calls and too much danger in ever letting her being seen out again. Heading up State Street through town, a woman who had recently seen the photos of Mitchell called 911 after seeing a man that resembled him walking through town with two women. Police were dispatched almost immediately, and before Elizabeth knew what was happening, Several police cars surrounded them. As the police began to question Mitchell, Elizabeth felt too terrified to breathe and dropped her head down. One of the officers approached her and repeatedly asked her her name. Too frozen with fear to say anything, with Mitchell's eyes upon her, she remained silent. Finally, a second officer spoke. "'She's scared,' he said. "'She doesn't dare say anything. You've got to get her by herself.'" When she still didn't answer, he spoke to her softly and asked, Are you Elizabeth Smart? Because if you are, your family has missed you so much since you were gone. They want you back. They love you. They want you to come home. With these kind words, she could finally speak. She responded, I am Elizabeth. In Salt Lake City, Ed Smart received a call from the Sandy, Utah police They told him they thought they may have found Elizabeth. Ed rushed to the police station, and when he first saw his daughter, he couldn't believe it was really her. A 14-year-old child had been taken from him, and in her place, he saw a mature young lady, very composed and no longer childlike. He asked her, Elizabeth, is it really you? She answered, Yes, Dad, it's me. Only then did she begin to cry. Ryan David Mitchell and Wanda Barzee were arrested and charged with aggravated kidnapping, aggravated sexual assault, and aggravated burglary. Mitchell's trial was postponed repeatedly, and it took seven years before the smarts would know the final outcome. As always, Mitchell continued to manipulate everyone around him for his own gain. Elizabeth always maintained that she never believed Mitchell was truly crazy or delusional. She always felt he just used his religious beliefs and his so-called status as a prophet, to manipulate and trick people into doing what he wanted them to do. Now he would use his con to delay his trial and sentencing, and it worked for a time. He had multiple competency hearings, first being declared incompetent to stand trial, and until finally, and not until 2010, was he ruled competent to stand trial. Elizabeth was able to tell her side at a court hearing in 2009, Although Mitchell was required to be in court, he refused to look at her. For her part, Elizabeth spoke directly to him at times, calling him evil, wicked, manipulative, slimy, selfish, not spiritual, and not close to God. In October 2009, Wanda Barzee was sentenced to 15 years for her part in Elizabeth's kidnapping. In 2011, Brian David Mitchell was finally sentenced he received two life sentences in federal prison. Under the federal system, he has no chance for parole. Elizabeth returned home to her very grateful family. She returned to school and just wanted to go back to her normal life. She decided against seeing a therapist and says that her therapy was playing her harp and riding and caring for horses. She says feeling grateful for her blessings and not dwelling on the terrible nine months she spent in captivity but on all the rest of her days alive on earth with a loving family and happy memories helped heal her. She credits her mother for telling her soon after she came home to not allow two wicked people to steal one more moment of her life. You keep every second for yourself, she told her. You keep them and be happy. God will take care of the rest. Elizabeth Smart is now a nationally recognized speaker and advocate for children's rights. She is the president of the Elizabeth Smart Foundation, which advocates for change related to child abduction and recovery programs and legislation. She has also helped to promote the National Amber Alert System and the Adam Walsh Child Protection and Safety Act. On February 18, 2012, she married her husband, Matthew Gilmore, in the Hawaiian LDS Temple. If you think you might have information about a missing child, or to report child sexual exploitation, contact the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children at 1-800-THE-LOST. Or for tips on how to keep your children safe, visit their website at missingkids.org. Thanks for listening to this episode of Once Upon a Crime. Once Upon a Crime is written, produced, and edited by me, Esther Ludlow. To give feedback or suggest show topics, you can find me on Facebook at Once Upon a Crime Pod and on Twitter at Upon a Crime. Please subscribe to the show on iTunes and rate and comment if you like it. Thanks for listening.
1: Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs and projects done well. If you own a home, you know how much work it can take. Whether it's everyday maintenance and repairs,